0: Hello and welcome to another podcast of U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today we are doing part one on the life and presidency of Herbert Hoover. This will be a two parter. Jean Ann interviews our special guest, Tom Schwartz, director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, Iowa, which is one of 13 presidential libraries and museums which are run by the National Archives and Records Administration. Without further ado, Jeannie, take it away.
1: All right, so let's get started. Most people know Herbert Hoover as a one-term president who served at the start of the Great Depression. His policies and lack of direct action, he did take action, but not direct action, to pull the nation out of what would become the worst economic crisis in its history. That event ended his presidency, and it ruined him politically especially in the eyes of Americans, even though future presidents, never FDR, but future presidents would tap him on the shoulder to do things here and there. The truth is that Herbert Hoover had a very long career in politics before and after his presidency. Today, we are joined by Tom Schwartz, who is the director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Museum and Library in West Branch, Iowa. I'm very excited for this podcast today because I think Herbert Hoover is one of our former presidents that's kind of blanketed in this mystique. And when people speak of him, it's always through the lens of the Great Depression. And and he's got all of these wonderful contributions before his presidency and a really great number of accolades after. So I'm, I'm very excited for people to know a lot more about who Herbert Hoover was. Herbert Hoover lost both of his parents at a young age. And I think the death of a parent in particular is definitely one of those events that kind of puts your life into two pieces, you know, before and after. And for Herbert Hoover, he loses both parents within a span of really three years. And he's very young when his parents die. How would you describe his childhood in Iowa before the death of his parents? And then when he goes and he lives with his uncle in Oregon?
2: Hoover grew up in a Quaker community. West Branch, Iowa, was settled by Quakers. It was a hub of activity on the Underground Railroad, and Hoover grew up hearing about these stories. His parents were of the quietest tradition, which meant you'd go to the meeting house and you would sit in silence waiting for the spirit to move you. And as Hoover indicates in his memoirs, it was very hard for a young boy to not even want to count his toes. Very hard to sit still and to sit quiet. But that's kind of the environment he grew up with. His father was a blacksmith and then went into farm implements, was somewhat prosperous, but then died suddenly. And then, of course, his mother dies three years later. Hoover was the middle child. He had an older brother, Tad, and a younger sister, May. And so much of his childhood is really the recollections of his older brother, Tad, which Hoover kind of adopts for himself. An uncle outside of West Branch tries to take the family in and keep it together, but can't afford it. And so at the age of 10, Hoover is sent with a couple from West Branch that's moving to Oregon. They supervise him, and he goes out to live with an uncle, Henry John Minthorne, a medical doctor. He and his wife had just lost a son of similar age. And so in some ways... Cooper is kind of replacement labor for their deceased son. Cooper always talks about his uncle in respectful terms, but it's clear that while he respected his, his uncle, it wasn't a warm, loving relationship. Out in Oregon, he attended his uncle's academy. He ran a Quaker academy. And then three years later... Um, His uncle moves uh, to Salem from Newburgh, Oregon to Salem and sets up a business, which Hoover is employed and kind of learns business skills. But it's also here where a librarian introduces Hoover to the love of reading and books. Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe and Charles Dickens. Hoover learns through books. Uh, it's not only a, a means of self-education, but also of learning about the world. He's able to, through reading, go to different times and places around the globe. That is very important in Hoover's education. He, he uh, Is a voracious reader, and his uncle sees the promise in Hoover that he's ambitious, he's smart, wants to send him to a Quaker college. But Hoover heard about this new college opening up in Palo Alto, California. Leland Stanford made millions through the railroad industry, and his son had died tragically. So he decided to create a university in honor of his late son. And in order to get people to enroll, he was offering free tuition to that founding class. Hoover thought that that was too good an opportunity to pass up. His mother had left him with a small amount of money from an insurance policy, but really not enough to get him through school. And so Hoover took the entrance exams at Stanford University, ended up failing everyone. But the preceptor saw Hoover kind of struggling with trying to find the answers and saw promise in him and thought that with a little bit of mentoring, if he were allowed to take the exams again, he could pass. And so the board agreed. Overtook the exams again. He passed everyone except got a provisional in English, but that was good enough. And that's began his time at Stanford University.
1: He attended Leland Stanford Junior University, which is more commonly known as Stanford University. Interesting side note: the school was named after a young boy who died of typhoid, whose parents Deeded significant amount of money and land to the school, the very same illness that killed Herbert Hoover's mother. At Stanford, Herbert Hoover studied to become a mining engineer and earned a and earned a degree in geology. In later years, he would become a benefactor of the university and serve on its board of trustees. Yes, and at Stanford, he meets his wife Lou, right?
2: Yeah. So um, Hoover majored in geology. They didn't have mining engineering as a part of the curriculum until years after Hoover graduated. But when he was a senior, the first woman who majored in geology was admitted, and that was Lou Henry. Lou Henry was born in Waterloo, Iowa, not too far from West Branch. Her father was a banker. Her father wanted a son and had two daughters, so the name Lou is somewhat intentional, Uh, but (laughs) He took his daughters camping, fishing, hiking, hunting, kind of to get a love of the outdoors. Lou really had this this love of nature and of the outdoors. And her mother had very weak lungs. And so the doctor advised that they relocate to warmer climate. And eventually they ended up in Whittier and Monterey, California, which is near Palo Alto. And there Lou heard a lecture from John Brainer, who was the head of the geology department, and became fascinated and asked her dad, Can I enroll? He said, sure. So all of, of course, the men in the geology department scoffed at the idea that a woman could keep up with them in the field work. And it ended up that Lou bested most of them. But no one could understand her attraction to Herbert Hoover. Lou was very sociable, outgoing, cultured. <laughs> and A linguist,
1: her, right? She spoke a number of languages.
2: She ended up she, five to seven, fluent, and Latin being one. Herbert Hoover was an introvert, uh, part of that being his Quaker upbringing, but he would always look at his feet and had a lifelong habit of jingling change in his pocket when he was nervous and would grunt a one or two word answer. What ended up happening is that by the time of graduation, there was some kind of understanding that he'd go off, try to make something of himself, and let her finish her degree, and then come back and see if there was still kismet. That was the understanding. So Bert goes off, and Lou graduates. She gets a telegram, and we don't have the telegram. And it probably didn't say, will you marry me, but probably more will you come to China with me? Because he had made a fortune in Australia working the gold mines with Baywood Mooring, the largest engineering firm in the world. And they were going to send him to China to map out the mineral reserves in China. This is 1899. And they were going to pay him $20,000 a year, which is a huge sum. I mean, the average American was making well under a 1000 a year. So Lou knows that it's a marriage proposal. She says yes. He makes his way back to the United States, stops off of Malta, buys Maltesian lace as a wedding gift. They were to be married by the congregational minister at Stanford. Well, he dies two weeks before the wedding. Lou was raised Episcopalian, Hoover Quaker. Lou was familiar with Quaker traditions because we're meeting houses in both Whittier and Monterey, California. Lou had taught parochial school and knew a Father Mestres and asked if he could perform a civil ceremony for them. He got dispensation. So you had an Episcopalian and Quaker married by a Roman Catholic priest in a civil (laughs) ceremony. And the day after the wedding, they're literally on that boat to head to China.
1: The Hoovers were married in 1899, and the day after the wedding, they moved to China. Not a good time to be in China. At the time, the Boxer Rebellion was in full swing. An account on the website of the Hoover Presidential Foundation states the following, and this is a direct quote from their website. Caught in the Boxer Rebellion, the bride was unflappable. She strapped a revolver for self-defense, ignored flying bullets, and carried on, end quote. Lou Hoover was truly a world traveler. She was a skilled linguist, learned eight languages. The Hoovers and their two boys would travel the world and work in places like Australia, Russia, Mandalay, which is in Myanmar, but at the time was known as Burma, and of course in England and in France. How do you think living abroad impacted them? They lived in, they lived in a number of different places, China being one of them. The one thing to
2: understand about the Hoovers, <laughs> is that his mining career took him to six of the seven continents, and Lou often traveled with him on these trips. Every place they went, Lou adopted the customs and the attire, and their collecting habits reflect their global travels. When they were in China, they both became fascinated what, with blue and white porcelains, which they collected their entire lives. We have dresses and costumes that reflect the different parts of the globe <laughs> where, where Lou traveled. Uh, jewelry. Lou also had this interesting fascination with weaponry. Even though she adopted Hoover's Quaker principles, uh, she had weapons, she never used them. But, you know, she collected boomerangs and blow dart guns and medieval broadswords uh, when they were in England. Just kind of very interesting and unusual kind of collecting habit, obviously artwork. And of course, when Lu was in China, she hired a tutor to teach her how to write Chinese characters and to speak a Chinese dialect. We're not quite sure what it was. Lu was the linguist in the family. She understood languages. Herbert Hoover took German at Stanford. He was failing it, so he dropped it. And as we've learned, he got a provisional in English. So language was not Herbert Hoover's strong. Rule. Lou, though, what what their world travels taught them is an appreciation for different cultures. And because the, the ore that Hoover was extracting was located not in the fashionable capitals of the world, but in kind of the most remote and desolate regions on the planet. They didn't have four-star hotels. And so often, you know, Bert and Lou had to essentially make do with the same kind of primitive conditions that the locals endured. And so they saw world poverty up close and personal. It was something, of all the presidents we've had, None knew the world better, had traveled the world, and more importantly, understood global poverty more than Herbert Hoover and Lou Henry Hoover. The other thing that their world travels gave them is a sense of perspective. When World War I breaks out and Hoover is both he and his wife are involved in the fundraising and feeding efforts uh, for the civilian population of belgium the commission for relief in belgium hoover is seeing these societal changes going on the russian revolution and then in the post-war world there's emphasis in many countries toward more central planning and i think hoover realizes begins to appreciate the wisdom of the founding fathers and the American system of government. So he writes a very important book in 1922 called American Individualism, which essentially talks about the importance kind of summarized by Abraham Lincoln of the open field and fair chance that, you know, of all systems of government, the American government is the one that emphasizes individual creativity and expression in this idea of open field and fair chance, that people should be able to reach their level of achievement given their talents and ambitions, and that government should really try to remove any obstacle for individual achievement. And that, that was a philosophy that Hoover lived with his entire life and why he always was some kind of suspicious of government of uh, central planning and uh, collectivism.
1: Before we get into his entrance into politics, I do want to talk a bit more about his work overseas. Hoover was very good at what he did, his ability to cut costs by lowering wages, bringing in immigrants from European countries to work the mines and avoid fears of strikes from union workers. In the mining industry, it it got him high-paying salaries at firm after firm after firm. One silver mine in particular helped make him his fortune. The Bodwin Mine in present-day Myanmar, which is believed to be the place where Sean King's mined silver over a thousand years ago. The name of the mine means silver hole. And when Hoover saw it, he invested his own money into the company's project. With Hoover's expertise, this mine became the most profitable in the British Empire. Hoover even wrote a textbook on the subject of mining titled Principles of Mining, Valuation, Organization, and Administration. Royalties from this textbook also made him a good amount of money. By the time World War I began, Herbert Hoover was a multimillionaire. The young boy from Simple Means, whose parents both died before he was 10, was a self made man and multimillionaire. When World War I broke out, the Hoovers were living in London. Hoover, along with other wealthy Americans living in London at the time, began a relief program to help their fellow American citizens who were now stranded in London and hoping to leave war torn Europe and return to the United States. We're talking more than a hundred thousand people. This was not an easy feat. At the start of the war, some banks in France and England refused to cash travelers checks, which some of our youngest listeners might say what what what's a cash travel what, what's no, what's travels check? what's a traveler's check Google it. Jeez. And foreign banks even refused to issue money. Even the wealthiest of U.S. travelers were left penniless and in need of aid in the form of things like food and a place to stay until they could get out of France. This got him noticed by American diplomats, and next he was offered an even bigger opportunity and responsibility, feeding the starving people in war-torn Belgium. In October of 1914, Hoover led the Commission for Relief in Belgium. It's most commonly referred to as CRB. During World War 1, the food crisis in Belgium was dire. The German Empire invaded Belgium and destroyed the majority of its infrastructure. Combine, you know, you combine that with the naval blockade that Great Britain had set up, it was a recipe for disaster, or in this case, a recipe for the starvation of nine million Belgian citizens. Hoover worked tirelessly with volunteers and created a huge marketing campaign that could persuade people, foreign governments, organizations to donate money to feed the people of Belgium. He had to work with government representatives of Germany and Great Britain to try to get supplies through to Belgium, And it's estimated that about $1 billion worth of aid was sent to Belgium. And if you travel to Belgium today, there are streets, plazas, and buildings named after Herbert Hoover. Because, you know, if you look through the mindset of the people, he saved them. After the United States enters the Great War in April of 1917, Herbert Hoover was brought to Washington, D.C. to serve as the U.S. Food Administrator under President Woodrow Wilson. His assignment was to enlarge the food supply of the United States and the allies. This meant boosting food production and also promoting food conservation. The slogan, food will win the war, was Hoover's slogan. During the war, the term Hooverize meant to ration household food items. Unlike during World War II, there was not a formal ration put into place in the United States during World War I. Instead, people were encouraged to find alternatives or to do without certain foods on certain days, which people did. When World War I ended, he was put in charge of the newly created American Relief Association, otherwise known as the ARA. He was tasked With directing relief efforts throughout Europe and helping to bring aid to countries that had been destroyed by the war and food to citizens who without it would not have survived. He helped to bring 34 tons, it's a lot, 34 tons of supplies to over 20 countries. You know, for Hoover, he makes a name for himself by helping stranded American citizens get out of war-torn Europe during World War One, He, of course, does a number of different relief efforts in bringing much-needed supplies, especially food, to the people of Belgium. And one of the things that he does, and I think most people don't know about, is the founding of the Hooper Library on War, Revolution, and Peace at Stanford. What do you think prompted him to create that?
2: The one thing you have to understand is that from essentially oh, 1895, To 1919, Hoover was living abroad, and because they didn't have air travel, most of his global travel required going on ships. His land travel went anything from trains to cars to camels to, you know, sometimes barges, but that time and travel allowed Hoover to read quite a bit. And on one of the passages from the Netherlands, which was neutral in World War I, to England, when he was working with the Commission for Relief in Belgium, he read a book by um, Andrew D. White, who was a historian, a diplomat, and he was also the first president of Cornell University. Well, White compiled a magnificent collection of materials of documents and printed materials dealing with the French Revolution. And Hoover thought, with this war going on, someone ought to make sure that these materials documenting this war, and remember at the time people thought World War I was going to be the war to end all wars. Of course. Uh, that, That someone ought to do that. Well, one of his friends at Stanford, who was a historian uh, on faculty, E.D. Uh, Adams, also reached out to Hoover around this time and said, you know, all of your records for the Commission for Relief in Belgium, this is, this is a really unique organization and that needs to be saved and studied. Then, of course, once the war was over and Hoover was with Virgo Wilson at Versailles, and they redrew the map of Europe, many countries that existed at the outbreak of World War One disappeared and new countries were created. Hoover essentially had Professor Adams come to Europe and start collecting records to save them from destruction. He gave Stanford University $50,000 to rent a space in their library and hired staff to look over these materials that he essentially was saving so that future generations could study the war. But then when World War II occurred, he realized that it's got to be a broader mission. And with the Russian Revolution and other revolutions, he realized that the broader mission was going to be go from a war library to a Hoover Institution that would study war, revolution, and peace, and all of the things that make for that. The Hoover Institution is still an acting, collecting institution. For example, they're collecting the records of ISIS and al-Qaeda, kind of modern-day revolutionary movements. And all of these materials are, he, he built the Hoover Tower, which is kind of its own repository now for these materials. And it, it, it's an ongoing collection. It really does document kind of this, the 20th century was, was, was a century of, of conflict. You know, two major world wars, uh, the Korean conflict and the Cold War. I mean, it, it, it really um, offers a unique insight into that century
1: the collections contain the most important materials on war revolution and peace um, social political economic changes in the modern era the documents are available free to the public if you go to hoover.org you can search some of their catalogs according to its mission The Hoover Institution seeks to improve the human condition by advancing ideas that promote economic opportunity and prosperity while securing and safeguarding peace for America and all of mankind.
0: Okay, this is a good place to stop and take a break and leave the rest for Herbert Hoover Part 2, where we get into his entering of the political arena. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.